to the choir master, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. And you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbours, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go down silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. O how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, and worked for those who take refuge in you. In the sight of the children of mankind, in the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. When I was in a besieged city, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried for you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Let's pray.
I'm going to use some words uh, of a prayer by John Calvin. Most gracious God, our heavenly Father, in whom alone dwells the fullness of light and wisdom, illuminate our minds, we pray, by your Holy Spirit, in the true understanding of your word. Give us grace to receive it with reverence and sincere humility. May it lead us to put our whole trust in you alone, and so to serve and honour you, so that we may glorify your name and edify our neighbours by our godly example. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Let me begin this morning with a question, and the question is this. What do the prophet Jonah, the prophet Jeremiah, King David, and the Lord Jesus all have in common as we look at Psalm 31 this morning? What do they all have in common with regards to this psalm? And the answer is this. They all quoted at one time or another from Psalm 31. Psalm 31 has been recalled frequently at moments of supreme crisis. Jonah's prayer in the belly of the whale, recalled verse 6. The prophet Jeremiah was haunted by a phrase from verse 13. The writer of Psalm 71, who is probably David himself in old age, opened his prayer with the substance of verses 1 to 3. And most of all, of course, verse 5 gave words to the Lord Jesus as he died on the cross. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And throughout history, those particular words that I've just said have also been recorded as the last utterances of many heroes of the faith. They include, for example, the second century martyr Polycarp, who met a dreadful death, and also the great reformer Martin Luther. So look with me now through the words of, verse, of Psalm 31. Now, an unusual feature of this psalm, you may have noticed this already as we read it together, is that it makes the journey twice from anguish to assurance, first in verses 1 to 8, and then again in verses 9 to 24. And it's hard to say, really, whether this is a renewed onslaught of the clouds after a period of refreshing rain, whether it's a renewed onslaught, or whether it actually re refers to a renewed confidence in God as the previous uh, time of strife is recalled. We don't know, and to be honest, it doesn't really matter. But what the psalmist does say very clearly indeed is that the Christian life is not a bed of roses. The Christian life is a struggle, and inevitably so. And yet this psalm is tremendously helpful and comforting to Christians who are under pressure. And we can expect it to continue to be encouraging to us this morning as we look at it in more detail. Now, the crisis that David faced is not entirely clear. Um, it could be emotional, it could be physical, um, but in a way that doesn't matter 
because the fact that it's left vague is in fact helpful to us because it means that the principles here are equally applicable to us this morning and when we are under particular pressure in our Christian lives. Uh, So let me map out for us where we're going as we look uh, at Psalm 31 this morning. Two key verses are verses 1 and verse 14. And in each of them, David makes a confident statement during his particular time of trouble. In verse 1, he writes, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. And in verse 14, he says, But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. So on what is David's confidence based? Uh, As we'll see, it's grounded upon the character of God himself. And what does reflection and meditation upon the character of God bring? It brings this. It results in the comfort that God supplies. So we'll see the relationship between those two things, I hope, as we go through this psalm just now. So our two headings uh, for us just to think about are God's character and our comfort. So let's start by looking at God's character. And this psalm is brimful of descriptions of what God is like. And clearly we can only scratch the surface this morning. For example, in verse 1, we see God's righteousness. And in verse 16, we see God's steadfast love. Now, these two aspects are supremely wonderful. But this morning, I'm actually going to focus on two other aspects of God's character, which are described in this psalm. So let me read again verses 2 and 3. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. So what is God described like in these verses? It's this. It's the fact that he does not change. Now, in theological terms, the long word that's used for this is God's immutability. But you might say, looking at these verses, I can see nothing here that clearly indicates that God does not change. Well, let's look again for a moment. The Bible, of course, often uses picture language to explain the character of God. And here the word used is rock. Verse 2 says, Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. A rock, of course, does not change. That's stating the obvious. In theological language, a rock is immutable. It's reliable. One can trust in the fact that it's not going to melt away under one's feet. Now, children, I'm sure you remember the song, The Wise Man Built His House Upon the Rock. Does that sound familiar? Yes? (laughs) And can you tell me what the final line is of that song? It's got the rain came down and the floods came up and the house on the rock... Any, any ideas? Firm. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, Matilda. That's excellent. The house on the rock stood firm. It was immutable. 
it didn't slide away like the house that was built on the sand. And this is the picture that David gives in these verses. And of course, he adds to it by using uh, the words, you are my rock and my fortress. Now, the idea of a fortress to us in the 21st century doesn't really mean much, but probably about 200 years ago, a fortress was of huge significance to the people living in a particular place. Uh, I would imagine if you've been on holiday to North Wales, you'll have visited the castles at Conway, Carnarvon, Harlech. They may sound familiar. Yes. And to us, they're just picturesque ruins. Uh, but in the Middle Ages, they were places of safety. They were fortresses, uh, places of refuge. They guarded key parts of uh, that part of Wales. They were enormously significant. Moving forward in time to the time of the Reformation, uh, in 1527, Martin Luther wrote the words of a hymn based on another psalm, Psalm 46, that speaks of God being a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Let me just quote from that briefly. I can find my place. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. So he uses the words there, a mighty fortress, a bulwark never failing. It's interesting uh, what the particular circumstances were when Martin Luther wrote that, the words of that famous hymn that I've just quoted from. It was almost certainly when the plague approached the town of Wittenberg, where he lived. And in those days, the plague could be a lot worse even than COVID. It could actually decimate, that is, lay waste whole towns and villages. And yet he could actually, in the confidence that God supplied, write these words, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. And that's tremendously relevant to us today, isn't it? It's relevant to us in, in this country, but as we've already prayed this morning, uh, how relevant is it to Christians under terrible difficulty in places like Afghanistan uh, and also North Korea and many other places around the world. So what is our God like? Our God does not change. He's reliable. He can be relied upon to the uttermost in whatever situation we may find ourselves. However serious or grave it might be. In this country, what we have, we might feel a very grave circumstances. Uh, they are not as grave as people in Afghanistan at the moment who, as Christians, must be under terrible pressure. But whatever the pressure, God is reliable. He does not change. He can be relied upon. Let me now read uh, some more verses from this psalm that really give us a second answer to this question of what is God like. Verses 19 and 20. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you. In the sight of the children of mankind, in the cover of your presence, you hide them. From the plots of men, you store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Words I just read were 
Oh, how abundant is your goodness. God is good. Some of you may have read this book, a book by a lady called Jen Wilkin, called In His Image. I think it was recommended one of the Sunday schools uh, we had a little while ago. And she describes in this book the goodness of God. And she uses these words. God's goodness is a light that radiates through all his other attributes. It is the reason his omnipotence, his omniscience and sovereignty are a comfort instead of a terror. It is the reason we can dare to believe that he is able to work all things together for good, as he said in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. So do you see what Jen Wilkin is actually saying here? Um, if you take away the long words she used, if you take God's possession of all power, his possession of all knowledge, and his possession of all control, if you actually take them on their own, God might well be truly terrifying, utterly terrifying, and nothing more than that. And yet, in this psalm, and throughout the Bible as a whole, we are constantly reminded that God is good. Verses 19 and 20. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you stored up for those who fear you. In the cover of your presence, you hide them, you store them in your shelter. Now, the word shelter in our translation is really a bit weak. It's the picture of a fugitive uh, being hidden away in a secret hiding place of God's choosing. And again, the word store really doesn't do justice to what's being described here. What it really talks about is the cover of God's presence. So God's covering I mean, what a place to be stored away in safety, in the safety of God's shelter. And this is a wonderful example of God's goodness in practice. So let me now take you to briefly to another example of God's goodness used in the New Testament. Now, I'm going to read a very short section from Luke chapter 2, uh, commencing at verse 8. And again, children... As I read these words, can you spot where the word good comes in? You'll recognize what the passage is about. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. So did you spot the word good there? I'm sure you did, yes, <laughs> as we went through that. Uh, it's good news, great joy that will be for all the people. And what was that great news of great joy? It was, of course, the birth of Jesus Christ, the God-man, God's only beloved son, who would save God's people from their sins. So what is the greatest example of God's goodness in the Bible? We've got wonderful examples in the Old Testament. 
but in the New Testament, which the Old Testament, of course, points to. The greatest example of God's goodness is in sending Jesus to be our saviour. When David wrote that psalm, the birth of Jesus was, of course, still a thousand years in the future. And yet David could still affirm God's goodness without any hesitation at all. And how much more can we do that today? So David meditated upon God's character. That was the rock-solid basis for his confidence in God. So again, what is God like? Our God is good. And it was this confidence that enabled David to take comfort, which brings us to the second half of what we're going to look at this morning. So come with me now back to verse 5 of Psalm 31. You'll recognize these words, I'm sure. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. And just to say that the use of the word spirit here is an interesting one. In the Old Testament, it's closely associated with the idea of life itself. And what David is saying here is that he commits his whole life into God's faithful hands. And to understand this a little better, let's uh, look together at these words, of course, on the lips of Jesus himself as he hung on the cross, possibly his very final words. The impression that these words gives is of a very peaceful situation, isn't it? It's of going to sleep, as it were, but in the context of David, and much more so, of course, for the Lord Jesus, it's one of utter anguish. The night before his crucifixion, Jesus had prayed these words as recorded in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22. Let me just read them to you. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. As we've just read, Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane that the terrible cup of God's wrath bearing the sins of the world, might pass him by. And such was the intensity of his prayer that we read that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. But do you notice, though, that, that Jesus said to his father, not my will, but yours be done. So how was God's faithfulness at work in the Garden of Gethsemane? It was not a faithfulness that allowed Jesus to move through his earthly life untouched. It was terrible. But as we know, Jesus was rescued by God. Jesus in his human nature was rescued by his father from the effects of death through the resurrection. Christ defeated the ultimate enemy. He faced death itself, not by avoiding it, 
but by actually going through it as a man. Now, we might say that this verse, verse 5 of Psalm 31, applies uniquely to the Lord Jesus, and so it does. But we can also utter it ourselves with confidence today. And in saying these words, we are acknowledging that God is in charge, not us. It is not a question of saying, I'm in control, God. Now I'm committing myself to you. In the the garden, Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. And we need to say the same, knowing with certain confidence that in the end, God's will for each one of us is by far the best. Look with me now to the second half of verse 5, though. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. And in the Old Testament, it's worth remembering that the word redeemed mostly means to rescue or ransom out of trouble rather than atoning for sin. That's in the Old Testament. Uh, But do you notice that the words I've just read read like this? You have redeemed me, not you will redeem me. In his dying words, Jesus stops short of saying the second line of this verse. Now, this may have been significant. We don't know for sure. But God did rescue Jesus through the resurrection, Jesus in his human nature. So these words, as originally spoken by David, are wonderfully relevant to us. God's rescue is as sure as if it had already happened. That's the way David says it. Uh, You have redeemed me. He may be still facing trouble, but you have redeemed me are the words he used. And we can have great confidence that whatever the difficult situation we find ourselves in today, God will deliver us too. may not be the way we're expecting, but his deliverance is absolutely certain. Um, One of the favorite um, chapters of the Bible, which I'm sure is a favorite of yours too, for me, is Romans chapter 8. Briefly, let me read from verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So just to pull together where we've got to so far, what is our God like? What is his character? As we've seen, our God is good, and our God does not change. What comfort does this bring to us? The comfort that we can commit our lives to God in Christ, knowing that he is faithful and that he has redeemed us. So as we draw to a close, uh, look with me at the final verses of this psalm. 21 to 24. There is only one response appropriately to make as we look at what this psalm teaches us this morning, and it's a response that David himself made. It's a response of praise to our wonderful God. 
Let me read 21 to 24 again. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. When I was in a besieged city, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. There's a threefold affirmation of praise on David's lips here. Verse 21 to start with. Blessed be the Lord. The psalmist pours out abundant blessing on the Lord God who has first shown his grace and kindness to him. He turns wholeheartedly to his creator in a desire to turn the blessing that he's received back to God. And in the verses that follow, we can see why he does that. He's actually been in dire straits, hemmed in in a besieged city, without hope, feeling that he was cut off and beyond divine comfort. And I wonder whether you've ever felt like that. Everything going wrong, a feeling of hopelessness. And that was David's experience. But you notice that he uses in the translation, the word used is but. So dire straits, but. You heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried out for help. This is what David says. And what a great word that word but is in this context. Isn't it wonderful that we actually don't have to rely on how we may feel in a particular situation, but we can rest secure in the certain promise of God's faithfulness and comfort to us. And so David continues in verses 23 and 24 by bringing, as it were, the whole congregation uh, behind him in praising God. Up until this point, it's been David on his own reflecting on God's gracious kindness in a particularly difficult or number of difficult situations. But now he brings everybody together and on their lips, love the Lord, all you his saints, be strong let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. It's almost uh, certain that these words on the psalmist's lips recall the words that Joshua used to prepare the people of Israel for the campaign against the inhabitants of the promised land. as They were ready to cross the Jordan and go to take the promised land. And readers of this psalm, in its original context, would have remembered that. They would have remembered, for example, the amazing taking of Jericho when the walls fell down. And it's likely, too, that the original readers of the psalm would have remembered the concluding exhortation, exhortations, encouragements of Joshua in chapter 1, verse 9 of the book of Joshua. Let me read them. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And of course, the wonderful thing is that that promise is just as true for us today here at Christchurch Central. 
as it was when those words were still first uttered. So, God is good. God comforts his people. And God commands us to be strong and courageous. And he does so with the certain promise that he will be with us in all circumstances. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to praise you for your wonderful character, for your goodness, for the fact that you never change. We praise and thank you that you wonderfully show us your steadfast love. We thank you that you hear our pleas for mercy and that you preserve the faithful. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you that our times are in your hand. Help us, we pray, to hand over to you all our concerns and our selfish desire to be in control ourselves. Enable us, we pray, to say with complete confidence, into your hands I commit my spirit. And help us to respond with thankfulness and reliance on you to that wonderful command and promise first given to Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.